the other night, I spoke about the title or the topic of this retreat being seeing the world through Dharma eyes or seeing our life through the understanding of the Dharma. What we've been doing here today in developing awareness of our moment-by-moment experience is learning how, or it's really laying the foundation for seeing the world, seeing the elements of our life, the experiences of our life, through the lens of understanding that the Buddha saw the world, through the eyes of the Dharma, or through the, the wisdom eye of the Dharma. Because, as I mentioned, the Buddha was concerned with suffering, the cause of suffering, and the end of suffering. And that was his uh, primary, maybe not exclusively, but his primary um, goal in life was really to, to really understand what suffering is, what the cause of suffering is, and what the end of suffering is. And if we too continue to practice in this way of developing awareness as we have been the last couple of days, we too will certainly, as I'm sure you can all confirm, we will begin to understand the nature of our personal suffering, both the uh, mental torments and the uh, kind of the cognitive agitation that just really makes for uh, challenges in our life. Our teacher, Sayadaw Utejaniya from Burma, says that a yogi like ourselves has three jobs. The first job is to hear and understand right view. That means to understand the way, or at least to hear the way the Buddha understood things, and as much as possible, apply it in our practice. The second yogi job is to develop awareness. And the third is to persevere with that awareness. So when Sayadaw says that we need to hear and apply right view, we should understand that right view has a pretty prominent place in the teachings of the Buddha. In the Four Noble Truths, the first truth is the truth of suffering or the truth of dukkha. The second is the cause is craving. The third is liberation or the end of craving and the end of dukkha is possible. And the fourth is the path of practice to be developed in order to realize the end of craving and dukkha. That path is essentially three trainings. A training in ethical conduct, which we are practicing here, living according to precepts. A practice of uh, development developing the mind through mindfulness, which we're also doing here, and the development of wisdom, which in the Buddha's itemization in the Eightfold Path involves two elements, right view and right thought, or right intention. So right view is central to the Noble Eightfold Path. When Sariputta, who was the second to the Buddha in the development of wisdom at that time, was asked by some fellow monks how they could establish right view in their own mind, in their own heart, he said there are two elements for establishing right view. The first is we need to hear what the right view is from someone else. Well, this comes right up against our conditioning of being educated, think for yourself, solve your own problems, uh, trust authorities only to the extent necessary to figure out what you've got to do, and so, let's face it, we're all, we're all pretty bright. We're all pretty educated. We live in an information age where 
anything and everything is available to us. And if we don't know it, we can always Google it or look in Wikipedia and we'll find it pretty quick. Something. And so when we hear Sariputta saying, you know, the right way of understanding your experience, the way to understand your experience that leads to the end of suffering is not possible for you to figure out by yourself. You have to hear how to do that from someone else. <laughs> That's a confront. You know, we're so, well, we're so confident in our knowledge and our way of understanding and our way of solving problems that it may be hard for us to take in that we could not figure it out for ourselves. Okay. Let me just give you an example of how this works. You know, if we if we just plopped down on earth here and we observed the course of the sun in the sky day after day, we'd see the sun rise over there in the east, circle overhead, set in the west, after a few hours of dark, it's back in the east, and does it again, and again, and again, and again. From our own direct observation, we would think and conclude that the sun was traveling around the earth. We have no way of, with just that much information, we have no way of understanding it any differently. And yet, there have been those in the course of human history who took in the bigger view of things and understood the movement of the stars and the planets and the, around the sun and concluded that no, the sun doesn't go around or circle around the earth. In fact, the earth spins and only in the course of a year does it circle the sun. Now we have been told this well, belief from an early age, and we now believe it. There isn't anyone in this room that doubts that the sun does not circle the earth. Right? We all know the earth spins and it goes around the sun. And yet from our direct perception here on earth, we can't confirm it. And yet we believe it. Well, the right view of suffering and the end of suffering is like that. The Buddha understood from a different perspective than we have how to reach the end of suffering and what the end of suffering looks like. And he's telling us in his articulation of right view. So it's important that we at least begin to listen, hear what the Buddha is pointing to. And even though it may sound very counterintuitive, it just doesn't sound right. Nevertheless, if we practice in the way that we are here, we will begin to confirm for ourselves that indeed this way of understanding our experience does indeed lead to lessening of suffering. That's the first element of establishing right view within our own heart, mind. The second element that Sariputta acknowledged was we need to establish wise attention, which is exactly what we're doing here. So tonight I want to speak about right view because it's so important even at the very beginning of practice and even though we may not confirm it until the very end of practice. The Buddha taught the Dhamma. The Dhamma is the way things are, the way things have come to be. It's the truth of the experience. It's our momentary experience. The Dhamma with a capital D is the teachings of the Buddha. And the Buddha's teaching pointed to the way things are. The th way things are experienced, the way things are, the way they can be understood, 
And so when we practice the Dhamma as we are here, we're actually something like scientists of the mind, scientists of the heart. We're looking at our own experience and gathering the data so that we can arrive at the understanding of the way it is in our heart. So that everything that we are observing in our experience, in this mind, in this body, in this heart, is really the truth, it's the Dharma, and everything about it, everything that we observe is natural. There's nothing unnatural about what we're experiencing or how it is for us. Everything is appearing, arising in its momentary expression due to causes and conditions guided by the lawful way of life, the way things are. And everything that we observe, all that occurs in the body, in the mind, in the heart, is natural, a natural process, it's a natural phenomena. And there's no mistakes. There's not some you know, unnecessary thing happening. There's not some unexplainable thing happening. Now, we may not know all the causes and conditions that give rise to, well, what we've been experiencing today. But we can be sure that there weren't any mistakes. There, were, there are, if we understood the far-reaching conditions that give rise to this moment, moment after moment, then we would begin to understand everything we experience is a lawful result of causes and conditions. Now, when I talk about causes and conditions, the Buddha was very, had a very elaborate and very refined understanding of conditionality. How things come together to create an experience. How all the elements of the body come together, the mind come together, or the environment come together to give rise to this moment's experience. And in his study of the mind and the body, he discovered or at least spoke about what he called the natural laws that govern the unfolding of the universe. Some of those laws we're familiar with in Western science, like biological laws, the study of life and life forms and, and how that happens. And we know from Western scientific studies about the lawful nature of seeds. You know, you plant an orange seed, cultivate it carefully, you're not going to get a mango tree. You're going to get an orange tree. And so too with other genetic uh, activity. We are a product of our parents' genes. We carry them within us. This is a lawful result of male and female coming together to produce another being which is genetically similar or a composite. It's not accidental that you are the way you are or that you carry the genes you do. It's a lawfully given um, result due to those causes. There are also physical laws of the universe that the Buddha uh, recognized and that we too are heir to. A primary and obvious one is the law of gravity. Now, you don't have to believe the law of gravity, but if you don't, you're gonna, you, you might have some trouble because we're all subject to the lawful effects of the law of gravity. And if we're not careful, we'll suffer unnecessarily. There are also chemical laws that are operant within the body, within our life, within the whole universe, that it's not a matter of whether you like it or not, or believe it or not, <laughs> that's the way it is. You know, you mix these two things together and there is a lawful, conditioned result due to those causes. 
Okay, so those are the obvious physical, biological laws of nature that we're familiar with from Western science. But the Buddha, in his far-reaching investigation of the nature of life and the, the unfolding of the mind, observed and articulated further laws of nature that we in the West are only beginning to explore. You know, the neuroscientists that are studying a lot of meditators and uh, just trying to find out what uh, what's going on in the mind are taking their cues for the research that they're doing from meditators <laughs> who have some understanding of the mind that Western science does not yet have, but they are trying to document and confirm through Western scientific method. And one of the laws that the, the Buddha articulated about the mind is the laws governing the unfolding of the stream of consciousness. You know, we think <laughs> the stream of consciousness that just flows through the mind endlessly from whenever you can remember to as long, uh, until you forget. It's not accidental. It's not random. It's not... Un unpredictable, even though we don't know all the causes and conditions that give rise to it going this way and going that way, the Buddha understood and articulated how we could begin to see and discern the causal unfolding of the mind. And if we practice in a certain way, as we are here, we will see the predictable, lawful results in the development of less suffering, calmness of mind, growing wisdom. It's not a personal endeavor that you make happen if you cultivate the causes and the conditions, the results are inevitable. What we're doing here is cultivating the causes for the development of wisdom. We don't have to make it happen. We don't have to do some mental gymnastics, if we develop the causes, the result will occur. There's another law of the mind that the Buddha articulated, and it's articulated in a part of the Buddhist teachings called the Patana, on the nature of conditionality. And he said that when a being is born, they're born with a mental legacy. We have a mental legacy. We come into the world with a mental legacy, kind of a, a, what's left over, or, or the development of the mind at the end of the last life. Now, you may not believe in uh, sequential lives or the stream of consciousness that is, just keeps getting relinked to another life form after life form, but if you've ever observed young children just out of the womb and are not too long after out of the womb, they're not just a blank slate of tell me what I gotta do here. They got you know, they got their own personalities right from the get go. Where'd that come from? Well the Buddha looked at it and understood that there's a mind there. There's a mind there and the mental legacy is both wholesome and unwholesome. You know, we come in with what is called the parami profile. You know, the paramis are those wholesome qualities of mind, generosity, love, understanding, renunciation, resolve, and there's many others. And we all come in with a certain, a kind of a baseline parami profile. We also come in with a kind of a, what's called the index of latent defilements. You know, the anusia. <laughs> you know, we got, we got them. We got these, the seed bank, you know, of uh, latent defilement seeds just waiting. You know, and we've got a kind of a, an index of those too, you know. And there are a few other uh, parameters uh, in this mental legacy that we come into life with. And you know, don't you sometimes wonder how is it that, you know, some people, like yourself, you hear the Dharma. You, you read a Dharma book, you hear a talk, you listen to the Dalai Lama, you come to a Monday night thing with Jack or, or whatever it is, you hear it and it just goes zing, 
right into your heart and it makes so much sense. It awakens something that has been dormant in there that you've always known but you never heard before. And you go, wow, okay, that's it. Got to check this out. And there are other people that hear the same thing and just blow it off like, what are they talking about? You know, just like no relevance, no significance, doesn't reach the heart. Why? Same information, same education, same conditions, except different mental profile. Different ability, different willingness, a different ability to hear and understand the Dharma. what we observe in our own practice is just this, the unfolding of the mind and the heart. And we begin to identify our strengths, paramis, and our limitations, latent defilements, and our tendencies, and our personality type, and our preferences. And we we get to see a, a kind of a package that we're working with. This is the mind. Now it's not fixed, it's not yours, it's not personal in the sense that you, you didn't make it. Causes and conditions have given rise to this mental legacy. And what we're doing here is amending our mental legacy. Cultivate every Dharma practice that you undertake, whether it's this kind of practice or loving-kindness practice or just practicing generosity or living an ethical life or just doing reflections, taking the refuges and precepts every day. All of these are Dharma practices that cultivate certain qualities of mind, wholesome qualities of mind, and in the process weaken and undermine the defilements, the latent defilements in the mind. So really, anything you do that's wholesome is going to affect, condition, change your baseline mental legacy. Those are some of the kind of the basic right views of the Dharma that are helpful in supporting the efforts we make here in practice. Now I want to talk about meditation practice itself because we're putting a lot of effort into meditation and we should understand how we should understand how this is beneficial. One view of meditation says in every moment something is being known. In every moment some set of conditions arises to produce an effect which is being known by the mind in every moment. There isn't a moment that goes by that there isn't some experience arising due to causes and conditions being known by the mind. As we know, though, we're not always aware because sometimes we're lost in thought we're spaced out, we're totally forgetful, we're fast asleep, and we don't know what's <laughs> we don't know what's arising. We don't know that anything's being known by the mind. Well, when we when we kind of plop back into awareness or we kind of realize, oh here I am again, we can sometimes see that, oh, that stream of thought that we were just lost in was a steady stream of knowing different thoughts, images, memories, plans, emotions, which at the time we didn't know anything about. So we can begin to, we can begin to, begin to believe that, oh yeah, in every moment something's being known, whether I'm aware of it or not. Awareness practice, awareness training, is to remember that moment is to remember to recognize and acknowledge what is being known in each moment and the fact that it is being known. So it's not just remembering the object, what has arisen, but it's remembering to be aware of it.
In meditation practice, there are many different kinds of meditation practice, as you know. But in this practice, and in, in all mindfulness practice, really, in all Vipassana practice, the field of meditative awareness is our own mind and body. Our own. Yes, we can look outside and see sights, hear sounds, smell odors, notice other people, and, and we can be mindful of all that. But as soon as we take in any sense object through the sense door and it goes into the mind, we're working with our mind. We're not working with that object out there. We're working with our mind's representation of that object in here. So even though we're hearing sounds, we're really not dealing with the external sound for more than a split second. We're dealing with the internal representation in our mind of that sound. So too with sights. So too with whatever we think about what we see outside. It's not really out there. It's in here after just a split second of coming through the sense door and contacting the mind or landing in the mind, you might say. It said that the Buddha gave a short discourse, and maybe it's his shortest discourse, and I'm sorry, I haven't been able to find the, I didn't look today actually, to find the, uh, the reference or the source for it. But the short discourse is that the Buddha said, in all of your life, you are only going to experience six things. Six. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thought, or thought, some thought process. That's it. Everything else in all the, the ver great variety that we experience in life is just uh, kind of uh, subtle changes in these six things. You'd think, if there's only six things to, 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 to pay attention to, we'd be able to get our handle on it. You know, it's like, it's only six things. Just, you just name them when they come out. You know, limit your, limit your labeling to just six things. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, or thinking. Or some kind of cognizing. But, not all, even though that's all that's being experienced, not only for humans, you think a dog experiences anything other than seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, some kind of mental process? Clearly, not all beings are practicing awareness. Even though we're all experiencing the same six experiences. So, when we talk about meditating, or we talk about the development of awareness, we're talking about recognizing the object that is arising in each moment and it being known. Now, objects can be anything. Today, we all experience just a proliferation of objects. All kinds of sensations in the body, pretty, pretty noticeable. They're pretty distinct. They, they, they seem to have a location. They have a certain quality of pleasant or unpleasant. They have a, a, pers a, a, a time element. They either la they're either brief or they last for a while. And they're pretty distinctive. When we get to thoughts, thoughts are pretty noticeable. Not really clear where they arise in the body, if at all. Uh, they have a limited duration. They're about so many words long, but they all they, they appear in a split second. And they have a certain feeling tone, but they're they're definitely subtler than sensations. Right? And then we get into emotions. Some of them are really loud and noticeable. You know, anger, rage, fear, you know, self-judgment. They're, they're pretty noticeable, but not sure where they arise in geographical space. And sometimes they just seem to gradually grow and sometimes they just pop in suddenly. And, but there are very subtle emotions too. You know, a sense of contentment, a sense of ease, maybe 
um, apprehension, disappointment. Some of those are subtler, and yet we can still notice them pretty clearly. When we get to moods and mental states, wow, they're really subtle. I used I used to say, you know, when I was growing up, I haven't I haven't finished that yet. I haven't finished growing up yet. I'm still, <laughs> but. When I was growing up, I used to say I only had one emotion, and that was moody. I was either, life was either great and I was happy, or I was moody. And I just didn't have any greater clarity of what the heck was going on than I felt moody. Well, I have to thank mindful, mindful awareness practice for uh, expanding my repertoire. I, I have two now. Moody and not moody. <laughs> I have more than that. But it was only through paying extraordinarily close and careful attention to this thing that I called moodiness to begin to differentiate the full range of mental states and emotions that we are heir to. Okay. We know mental states like contentment, like uh, subtle joy, or like the, the apprehension of the divine. You know, they're, pretty, they're pretty subtle. It's like we're not sure where they come from or where they appear or even how they do, but sometimes we get it. We just watch a sunset and we go, clunk. You see the full moon rise and we go, wow. You know, those are mental states that we can we can recognize quite distinctly if we're paying attention. When in this practice we ask you to look at the mind, to notice the activity of the mind, to notice the attitudes of the mind, they are even subtler than all that. The mind is so subtle, it's so ever-present, that we take it for granted and we don't see it. But it's always present and active. And yet if we say, look at your mind, we don't, know, we don't know where to find it. But we can see the mind in its activity of knowing, of liking, disliking, preferring, judging, evaluating, all the emotions, contacting the sense objects. This is the mind. But it seems so, well, that's, that's all there is. That's all we do. That's, and yet it's easy to overlook. Objects, as I said, are anything that can be known. That's their very nature. They are to be known by the mind, anything. So even beliefs, assumptions, uh, conjecture, are mental objects to be known by the mind. Because we're aware of them. We recognize them. So when we are talking about, in every moment, noticing the object that has arisen, if you're limiting yourself to a primary object like the breath, you're missing 99% or more of the objects to be known. The breath is, is a good object for steadying the mind, calming the mind down, but there's a lot more going on in this thing called me, my body, my mind, to be taking be taken notice of. In, in meditation practice, we, we need sense objects in order to be mindful. You, you can't be mindful if there's no object. And we use these objects to develop awareness, to persevere energetically, to stabilize the mind in a kind of a, uh, we'll say, a collected state and to begin to understand the nature of reality. Without objects, without objects, we couldn't contact the mind. What's the mind going to do if it has no object? Nothing. So meditation is the work of the mind. And while we have to have a, a posture, we're either sitting, standing, walking, laying down, or something in between, it's the work we do with the mind 
in our sitting. It's the work we do with our mind in the walking. Just walking mindlessly is not going to develop the mind. Just sitting in a numb kind of like space out is not going to develop the mind. You might be calm. You might learn how to kind of calm the mind down by doing nothing continuously or trying to. But there's no wisdom going to develop. Okay, so what we're doing with this kind of mindfulness for Vipassana or insight is working with the mind to develop the mind, to understand the mind. And this work of the mind really is kind of the activation and the development and the balancing of a great number of factors of mind, but primarily what are called the five spiritual faculties or the five controlling faculties. The first is faith or confidence, without which we wouldn't make all this effort. If we didn't have some belief that this was a worthwhile thing to do and that this particular practice was maybe useful, we wouldn't do it. We don't do useless things. We don't spend our time like this, like you did today, doing things that were not at least somewhat hopeful or confident about, but with a little bit of confidence. If we make the effort that we made yesterday and today, effort is the second element in the development of awareness, we can't help but be a little bit more aware. Maybe it's not so obvious even after two days, but I think so. Most people will recognize that you know, the mind is a little more aware, a little more expansive, a little more connecting with the present moment than it was an hour before you got here. It happens. If we make the effort, we are going to be gradually become more mindful and aware. And it is through the continuity of mindfulness that the mind becomes stable. You know, right now, after two days, it's still pretty, still gets jerked around pretty easy, as you know. You know, things come up and the mind goes off on a rant and we fall asleep and, you know, and then if we really work hard at it, we can get some stability for a while, but it's not, it's not that stable. But for all of you who've been on a retreat before, you know, at the end of seven days, at the end of nine days, wow, you know, somehow, gradually, you know, kind of invisibly, somehow to you, Day by day, the mind gets more stable. And in that gradual increasing stability of mind, we come to know more about ourselves. We come to know more, more subtle and refined uh, knowledge about the way things are within our own heart and mind. This is the activation of the five controlling faculties. Faith or confidence, energy, mindfulness, stability of mind, and increasing wisdom. With that kind of wisdom, we quite naturally feel more confident. We have more faith in the teachings. We're willing to make more effort. And in that, the cycle of gradually developing these faculties, these five faculties, goes on. And gradually and cyclically, they support each other until they reach a, uh, some level of maturity where we can be quite confident, effortlessly energetic, stable in our continuity of awareness, and understanding things quite profoundly, actually, and not just superficially. This is the development of the the awareness or mindfulness through developing and act activating the five controlling faculties. This is the work of the mind. The work, though, while those qualities of mind are being activated and developed, is to observe. It's just to learn how to observe our experience we have a tendency, 
And I don't know if it's from our education or just from what's available to us in the West, but we have a ten- maybe it's just conditioning of the mind. We have a tendency to make things very complicated. It is so difficult to keep things really, really simple. The simplicity of awareness practice is to just observe each moment's experience with interest. That's it. You don't have to figure it out. You don't have to explain it. You don't have to evaluate it. You don't have to get rid of it. You don't have to like it. You don't have to like dislike it. You don't have to be able to explain it. You don't have to compare it to anything else you've ever read in any other Dharma book. You don't have to seek anybody's approval of whether it's okay to experience it or not. You just have to observe it with interest. And the rest will happen. Through that gathering of knowledge, of the truth. This is the truth. This is what your experience is, moment to moment. And you're observing it with interest. With the gathering of that knowledge, gradually you will begin to understand the way things are within you. I was walking up the stairs to the dorm that I'm staying in here, and there was a one of you, can't remember who, was at the top of the stairs watching, observing a deer just down over the, over the bank. And there's a lot of deer around here, or if, if you don't see a deer, you can always watch the turkeys. But if you want to understand the nature of deer, if you want to understand really the, how deer are, you could go on Google, look it up. You could go on Wikipedia, look it up. But you wouldn't find the kind of information that you would get if you just watch and observe a deer for as long as it's in view here. If you just watch, you don't have to figure it out, you don't have to explain it. You just watch how a deer moves, what it eats, how it moves its ears, how it responds to sounds, people, um, and and you just observe how it flicks its tail, how it lifts its feet, how it plays, everything. If you watched a deer for, you know, half hour, an hour, two hours, you would know more about the nature of deer than you could ever read in Wikipedia. Right? You don't have to try to figure it out. You don't have to try to explain it. You don't have to know why it's happening that way. You would know just from observing. Well, the same occurs with observing our own body and mind. It's like we don't have to figure it out. We don't have to explain it. We don't have to justify it. We just have to observe. And yet, it is so hard to just observe with interest. We find all kinds of things to complain about, to get bewildered about, to want to explain, to want to ask, to answer the question, why is this happening this way? You don't have to answer the question, why? If you observe, you'll know. Eventually, you'll know why. So, I want to encourage you to keep it simple. Keep it really, really simple. Just ask yourself, can you just observe with interest each moment's experience? Acknowledge it for what it is for you. The Buddha, when asked, why is it that some people are really um, wise, really know how to live carefully and how to minimize their suffering? He said, Those who are wise have asked a lot of questions. Not of others so much as of themselves. Just looking at their own experience and asking questions about that. So too in our observing. If you you want to ask questions in your own practice, after connecting with the what of the moment, what is this experience, then just observe and you will be able to answer the questions. How did it arise? What did it feel like? How long did it last? What did it do to your energy? Did you like it or not? And you could answer almost any question that I or another could ask you about that experience if you just observed it. 
So if you ask yourself those questions, it can help sustain your interest in observing phenomena. One of our colleague, collegial friends, uh, Mark Epstein, says, For as the Buddhist view has consistently demonstrated, it is the perspective of the sufferer that determines whether a given experience perpetuates suffering or is the vehicle for awakening. To work something through means to change one's view. If we try instead to just change our emotional response to it, we may achieve some short-term success, but we remain bound by forces of attachment and an aversion to the very feelings from which we're struggling to be free. To work something through, to really come to a profound understanding in your own heart about your suffering, means to change your views. Not to just manipulate your emotions. So in this practice, we talk about the object that's being known. And of these two, the object is ever-changing. Even if we try to use a primary object like the breath, or posture, or sound, while we're trying to do that, it is dynamically changing all the time. If we're leaving our attention open and receptive, there can be a proliferation, a great variety of objects to be known. What we're working with primarily is the continuity of the awareness. Because as we are gradually more continuously aware, we're going to know more about the activity of the mind. And we're going to know more about the nature of awareness itself. And through this gradual development of awareness, whether it's of a single object, recurringly, like the breath, or of choiceless, random, great variety of objects, it is the continuity of awareness that we're developing, that we're working with. Why are we doing all this work? What's the purpose? What's the goal? And what's this got to do with the third noble truth of the end of suffering? It's worth asking because, you know, does it really have anything to do with the end of suffering? Sometimes we think that I was doing okay until I came on retreat. <laughs> you know, then when I started paying attention, my gosh, all this body pain comes out and all this emotional pain comes out. And it's like, hey, you know, it's like it sometimes seems like it gets worse. I see some nodding confirmation. Uh, you know, there's two kinds of suffering. There's the suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. And it's like this. If you take your hand and you squeeze it into a fist, it is as if grabbing onto something. And if you squeeze onto that thing, that object, whatever it is, and hold tight, you know, after 30 seconds, your hand begins to tremble. After a minute, it really aches. After five minutes, it's shaking and getting hard. And after 10 minutes, it's gone numb and you don't feel anything anymore. But you're holding on tight. If after a decade of holding on like that, someone said, hey, what are you holding on to? And you say, I don't know. Well, once let go. And you try to open your hand to let go, all the pain that you have been not noticing suddenly becomes very apparent. The pain didn't arrive because you decided to open your hand and let go. It's in there already, just waiting for you to be aware of it. Right? Well, the same thing is going on in our minds. We've been holding on to pain, fear, shame, embarrassment, desires, unfilled desires, unfulfilled desires, wants, all kinds of experiences from our life. 
things that worked, things that didn't work, things we want, things we didn't want. And we've been holding on to them with our mind, hoping for the good ones, hoping not to have the bad ones again, or the unpleasant ones again. And now we come here on a retreat and we say, hey, what are you holding on to? I said, no, I don't know. I, I, well, let go. And all you have to do is sit there and watch it go by. But it's painful because we've been holding on for so long that as we begin to see what we've been holding on to and we try to let go of our habits of anger, habits of fear, habits of uh, judgment, self-judgment, judging others, these are, these are habits of mind that we've been cultivating and holding on to for decades. Is it any wonder that it's painful? But in this awareness of the pain and learning how to be with it and to let it be and let it go, it is the pain or the suffering that leads to the end of suffering because once the fist is fully open and no longer holding on, there's no pain, there's no suffering, there's no holding. It's not hidden, you're not oblivious to it, it's not there. Same with the mind. When the heart opens and it lets go, it's painful. But when it's open and remains open, there's no pain. By willingly observing all that arises in our experience, we will come to know the way things are for us. How things have come to be for us. And we'll begin to understand that our suffering, the defilements that arise in the mind and torment us, arise due to certain causes and conditions. And through our just, just direct observation, we will begin to understand those causes and those conditions that lead to the suffering. And when we see that and we understand that, we'll know how to respond rather than to react so that we're not constantly cultivating conditions for more suffering, but we're learning how to let go of conditions that cause suffering. You know, so much of our discovery in insight practice is really uh, opening to emotion, pain in the body, pain in the heart, one, of one sort or another. And inevitably when it arises, we feel sad, we feel angry, we feel fearful, we feel depressed, we feel anxious, we feel panicky, we feel whatever. And we can't help but think, I'm anxious, I'm afraid, I'm depressed. And the Buddha said, you know, we should really look carefully at this experience because the difference between expressing our experience as I'm afraid is very different than thinking about our fear. So when we think about our fear, we get into the story of why I'm afraid. You know, we're not, we're not just afraid. We're kind of ruminating over the story of our fear or the story of our shame or the story of our, you know, depression whatever it is. But there's a further difference in being aware of these emotions. Being sad, thinking about your sadness, and being aware that sadness has arisen are three very different experiences. Very different. They all can only appear or occur when sadness is present. But it's how you're relating to it. If you think, this is my sadness, you're entangled with it. If you recognize, oh, this is the nature of sadness that has arisen and is being known, then you can be aware of it. It still is there, but you have a very different understanding of it and a very different relationship to it. That's what we're cultivating here. 
the understanding that whatever your experience is, is due to the arising of conditions that are being known. To add yourself to the picture is extra. To put yourself in the middle of that set of conditions, the idea of yourself in the middle of conditions, will cause suffering. To see it clearly as, oh, just the arising of conditions that are being known frees us from that suffering. I was recently uh, in Seattle uh, doing a, a, a weekend uh, retreat, non-residential retreat, and I was speaking to, or I was speaking to all of them, just asking for their experiences. And there was a woman there who had done a retreat like this about six months previously up in Cloud Mountain Retreat Center up in uh, southern Washington. And she was fairly new to practice. And it was the first time she had heard of this kind of practice, uh, or practice observing the mind, becoming aware of the mind. And somewhere towards the end of the weekend retreat, she just, if she's very shy, um, you know, I say middle-aged, probably in her 40s, early 40s. And she just said, you know, I did a retreat like this um, about six months ago. It has completely changed my life. Completely changed my life. She said, now when I, you know, get in any kind of, you know, emotional turmoil or drama of one sort or another, she has the capacity to just step back from it and recognize, oh, this is just a swirl of mental stuff that's being known rather than, I'm so distressed, I'm so anxious, I'm so fearful. She just has this ability, after just one retreat, of just stepping back and seeing, oh, that's what's being known. Hasn't solved all of life's problems, that's by any means, but there's such a sense of relief when you can recognize that it's not all about me. It's not all about my issues, my problems, my my fear, anxiety, panic, whatever it is. These are experiences that have arisen due to causes and conditions, most of which we cannot control. Most of which we cannot control. But through wise attention and right view, we can begin to disentangle ourselves from this suffering and the causes of this suffering. This is the path of insight. This is what we're doing here. Cultiv- hearing this right view and cultivating it in our moment-to-moment experience. Learning how to disentangle our sense of self from these momentary experiences of suffering. So let's just sit for a moment and let the words quiet down. When the mind is supported by right views and is unclouded by confusion, greed, or negativity, reality is recognized accurately. This is seeing our world through the eyes of the Dharma, and it is the foundation for well-being and liberation. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
donate.